Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. Happy New Year. I think we can still say it. It's a new year. It's a new episode. And I can't think of a better way to start than with Alvin Irby. Welcome back, Alvin. Alvin is a former kindergarten teacher turned award-winning social entrepreneur, international speaker, comedian, and author. He is founder and chief reading inspirer at Barbershop Books, a literary program that creates child-friendly reading spaces in barbershops and provides early literacy training to barbers. His work, connecting reading to male-centered spaces and involving men and boys' early reading experiences, earned him the National Book Foundation's 2017 Innovation in Reading Prize. Irby's TED Talk, How to Inspire Every Child to Be a Lifelong Reader, has been viewed over one million times. Not to mention, Beyonce gave him a nod. So, one million times, but Beyonce. That's the credit right there. Alvin, also as stand-up comedian, won the Clean Comedy Showcase at the San Diego Comedy Fest and second place at the Laughing Devil Fest. Check out his comedy album, Really Dense. Welcome back, my young star, Noye Brown-West. She's a New York-based Nigerian-American comedian and writer. She has been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as a comic to watch, and we agree. As well as she's been seen in NPR, PBS, ABC, Sway in the Morning, and the New York Comedy Festival. Noye made her acting debut in The Sympathy Card, now available for streaming on Vudu, Apple, Amazon, and Google Play. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeusten. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip. Donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going and now for our golden friends you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage every monday 1 p.m eastern standard time don't miss it go to patreon backslash friends like us and become golden merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops they're all available just go to my website marinafranklin.com weekly on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend Dave Jeskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave us reviews. We have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by, and sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe, wash those dirty little hands, wear a mask still if you want to. I mean, it is the winter, there is a new variant. Come on, folks, get vaccinated, booster up, and Black Lives matter. As I said before, I lost my voice due to smoking tremendous amounts of marijuana. Don't feel bad for me. It's not COVID. <laughs> well, around this time, I, uh, you know, it's dry air and the combination of smoking and yes, Noye says I should do edibles, but edibles get me too That's high. What I, do. I take like the smallest, like I'll get a razor blade out and just take like the thinnest amount I swear, because like you don't need, everyone's always like, oh, eat the whole thing, eat half. You can take a slither and it works. It gets you like that good, nice high. I like um, microdosing also. I microdose mushrooms when I'm in pain. 
Oh, where do you I told get you your that mushrooms? Before, I never know where to get them. Um, so there's this there's this like weed person that like hangs out at comedy clubs and like if you're having a oh, show, they'll yeah, yeah, you know who they'll just have bags, goodie bags for you there for free. I haven't because, seen that person in a while. I thought they they were went crazy. Are they something. not around anymore? I haven't oh, seen they, them. Mm. All I know is if people became like confectionery artists during the pandemic and they're now making desserts, all I have to say is just let somebody know that the gummy worm has been blessed. Like, don't just give it to them. And I'm like, I love gummy worms. And then the next thing I know, my 10 minute shower is taking 42 minutes uh, because, you know, it had the, the gummy worm had been infused with the herbal essence. So, yeah, that's that's all I ask. Just a shower, Alvin. So for, so our, for our guests, like I'm slacking because my voice is gone, but I do want to welcome both of you. We have today Alvin Irby and Noye Brown-West. Both of you are actually both young stars. You're still young, Alvin. Happy New Year to both of you. How did you ring in the new year? I got some grays. Oh, I got grays too, but I wear wigs so you can't tell. They're all right. The oh, front. you both better <laughs> My stop. edges. Talking to this old lady. Listen, I even sound like an old lady. Hey, why don't you come over to my house today? Oh, my God. Uh, well, you so, know what? Your um, voice is perfect for Negro spirituals. Well, oh my goodness. Oh, well, hey. But something we were talking about for the new year, Tesla stock is plummeting. Like, it's crazy. Like, and I watch those guys on Market Mondays on uh, Earn Your Leisure guys. They're really great. But there's one guy who was saying that you should still invest in Tesla because it's like science. It's like it's a company that we're still going to need it. It's like uh, if you go to Africa and you get gold, you go to America, you get, you know, but I don't know. I, I diminished my, uh, I still have a few stocks, but I subtracted some. But I don't know. I, so what I was saying before we started recording is I think the market's finally correcting as far as Tesla's concerned, because as like I was saying, companies like Ford, which is a very strong car company, um, they only trade for about like 17, 30 bucks. And I feel like Tesla was always overvalued. What about BMW? So maybe coming down. BMW. Who bought BMW? No, I mean, Who's what do they trade them? for? Oh, look, I can, BMW? I can look it Let up right see. now. Hold on. Okay. I got my thing open. You know, I always have it open. Oh, uh, hold on. I know. 30 bucks. See, is it 30? $30. That's like a normal price for a car company, a, a popular car company. Even Rivian, Tesla's number one competitor. Um, they only trade for about 50 bucks and they're, they're the ones that are, you know, edging Tesla out a little bit. Um, they they traded higher when they first dropped Rivian because you know, Rivian did, but now they're trading for about fifty dollars on average. So I think Tesla's finally falling back to where a normal car company is valued, and I think that that will be where it stays. That's know. my prediction. I That's think my you're prediction. Right. I don't know. I I was trying to I was trying to hold on. I was trying. You know, me and Noye was going back and forth on the Tesla, and I was like, I'm just gonna let this ride. But, um, and I'm still going to keep my stock at, but the, the, then when I got rid of the two, the price, the base price was higher. I think that, you know, in terms of the actual prices of the stocks, like, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the value has also to do with like 
of the company has to do with like, well, how many shares of those stocks are even available, right? Because, you know, the price of four might be, you know, really low, but if they have like a whole lot of shares, it it kind of adds up to a, to a whole lot of money. But, um, you know, I think that the day-to-day price movements of just almost any stock, a lot of it has less to do with the actual value of the company and has to do with trader sentiment. So for example, I remember a few years ago, um, Sally's, you know, the uh, hair care company, their stock went down 14% in a single day. And I remember thinking to myself, Sally seems like a solid company. Like why in the world would their stock go down so much in a single day? And I went and looked at their financials. They don't have a lot of debt. They use their money well. They make, you know, good profits. You know what it was? Amazon on that day, or someday recently they had made an announcement that they were gonna start having brick and mortar beauty or supply companies. So all of a sudden people just got scared and were like, oh my God, you know, Sally's is gonna go down. When in reality, they still own the same amount of buildings, right? They were still making the same amount of profit, but traders, you know, their thinking or beliefs about the company may have changed. And so I think that, you know, in the case of, of, of you know, um, Tesla, so much of the hype around the company certainly had to do with the innovative technology, but it also had to do with just the CEO and him being perceived as this genius. And I think that now that some of that shine is gone, to your point, I think that people are re- <laughs> readjusting their lenses to kind of see, you know what, there are other you know, EV companies that are entering the market, the price points are lower, lower. You know, I think about, this makes me think about the, the guy who his company is named after, Nikolai Tesla, right? Uh, what's his name? Um, who was the other, uh, uh the Edison. other Edison, Edison, Edison yeah. was like Tesla, uh, Tesla. I, I think it's cool that you're trying to get light bulbs to light up without wires, but how is that practical? I want to be able to put light bulbs into an entire building and be able to turn them on and off. So I'm going to work on wires and light bulbs and something practical. And he did create like, you know, the fluorescent light bulbs, which people still use today. But what Edison did actually was more profitable just because it was more practical. So I think that like, you know, all of those things probably factor into, you know, what's happening. But I would say if you don't know, just, you know. I know it's a risky one that I did. I take full responsibility, but I learned my lesson. So Alvin, uh, my uncle Buzz does a stock class with me and Noye every Sunday. We've been we've been off for a while, but we're coming back next Sunday. Uh, Yamanika wants to join, which I don't know. We'll, we'll see because oh. my uncle's, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Now, Yamanika sits and listens, though. When it, no? Yeah, she does. But, you know, I'm nervous because, you know, my uncle's... I am very careful about the people I have around my uncle. Uh, we've learned, I've learned a lot over the years. You want to join Alvin? On yeah, the stock class? I, I, I like, I like trading. I trade. Okay. Um, I'll send you the link. Mark Theobald has been there and, um, Kyle. And I think he may be right. Kyle on the cruise ships. I think travel is the, is the place to go. Yeah. I think in the next year or two, but definitely this year travel, people are hungry for travel. Norwegian is the one that I had my eye on. I made some money off of Norwegian before I pulled pretty much my entire portfolio, but. 
Yeah. I know I've lost so much money, no yeah. But I'm just letting it sit there and watching it grow. And I'm I'm thinking now, which is a really good advice that someone sent to me, is dividend stocks to cover. So I'm gonna put a huge amount into a couple of dividend stocks and just get that for the next year. Cause I realized after like I didn't make anything. <laughs> that happened to me, remember? This year. Remember I told you that happened to me where I thought I made so much money. And then when I was doing my taxes, honestly, thankfully, because I would have had to pay a lot of taxes. But <laughs> when I was doing my taxes, I found out I made like a hundred dollars. And I thought I made so much. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't even have to pay, I didn't have to pay taxes on it. Because it was so little money. Gotta diversify, you know. You know? Well, we diversify, but the thing is, is there's nowhere to hide this past year there was nowhere to hide there was no unless you were shorting tesla which is why i feel like like gamestop remember that like i feel like there's is it hedge fund i think hedge funds stabilize the market in a sense that's short in business that's short in business you know i'm sure it goes well when 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 it's moving in the direction the scariest thing about you know shorting anything is that you can lose more money than you have Right. If you buy, you know, a hundred dollars worth of a stock and it goes down to zero, well, you just lost a hundred dollars. But if you short something <laughs> with a hundred dollars saying that you think it's gonna go down, you could you could lose way more than what you you even you even invested. So you know, you know, you gotta just you know try and try and educate yourself and do but, you know do the best yeah. you go can. Go ahead, no, you know? yeah, educate. I will. I no, will. An expert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an expert, but I have no money. So what good does it do me? But um, I will say shorting Tesla was a fabulous idea this last year because it's down 71%. If you shorted Tesla this year, you made a ton of money. Oh, no, no. Shorting strategically is, 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 is something that I think, you know, pretty much all those finance people, they do it. It's just that uh, they also have fiscal controls in place to get in and out of stocks and things like that. And if people don't have those things thought through, you know, it can, it can, um, you know. Well, maybe we should read some books on it. Uh, Transition into barbershop (laughs) books, which is why we have you back, Alvin, with your incredible work that you're doing. How are you feeling about barbershop books in 2023? You know, I am feeling uh, eternally inspired um, by, you know, my team who, the last time I was on here, my team certainly looked very different than than what it looks like today. We have um, six full-time staff. And I think the last time I was on, I was the only full-time staff. And so we've grown um, significantly. And I also, you know, have just felt like, you know, I'm growing a lot as a leader, you know, in terms of just figuring out and thinking through kind of who is the leader that Barbershop Books needs me to be not only today, but for where we're going you know, versus the leader that the organization has needed me to be for kind of what we were doing. You know, there's some really exciting partnerships with library systems. Uh, this, this um, you know, coming year, uh, we're going to be partnering with four different library systems in four different U.S. cities to support them in implementing the Barbershop Books program to, you know, enhance their engagement with Black communities and to get more Black families to utilize their local public libraries. And so I'm super excited about, um, you know, those partnerships and the children and boys uh, will be able to reach. Um, And then also we are building out a 
EdTech platform. Uh, over the last three years, you know, we've been uh, implementing a program called Reading So Lit that was desi that's designed to help children explore their reading preferences. So what are the kind of what's the content? What are the kind of conditions that that children prefer as it relates to reading? Um, and so this is kind of a new, I guess, arena for us. You know, I don't think, you know, when I was in that barbershop in the Bronx across the street from the school where I taught first grade when I saw one of my students reading, I don't think I had imagined kind of all the ways in which that one moment would kind of lead to, you know, some of the really uh, cool and exciting things that are happening. But I'm also so very grateful, you know, to just even be able to wake up every day and help the babies read, you know, to be able to put so much energy and passion Take into something. Take me back to that moment. Was that the cat? Uh, that's my favorite word catalyst was that the catalyst for you starting this can you take me back to that moment why why you started this i was teaching first grade uh at ps69 in the bronx in soundview um and there was a, a barber shop across the street um directly across the street from the school and so you know no matter where i taught whether it was in the bronx in harlem um east harlem it was really important to me that i always whenever possible kind of gave back to the community, not just in the classroom, but also the local businesses uh, around the school. And so I would always get my haircut, you know, across the street from the school. So one day after school, I'm getting a haircut. And one of my first grade students, I was teaching first grade at the time, he came into the barber shop, plopped down on the sofa. And, you know, he was kind of looking out the window, you know, a little bored and he started getting antsy. His mom was like, sit down. And the whole time I was observing this because he was my student. I knew his reading level. The whole time, all I kept thinking was he should be practicing his reading right now. And I wished I had a children's book to give him, but I didn't. And so it really was that chance encounter with one of my first grade students that sparked the idea for what eventually became Barbershop Books. Of course, a lot has happened between that moment and now. Fortunately, Denny Moe's Barbershop uh, in, in Harlem, I asked Denny Moe, someone, I told him about the idea and they're like, well, Denny Moe is always doing stuff in the community. He probably would love to do this. So I literally, out of the blue, went over there, was like, Denny Moe, I got this stack of books. Could I sit it on the table and just watch? You know, I'm, I don't know if anyone will read it or read the books. I'm just curious and I'd like to potentially explore this. He said, sure. I sat down there and for over like over a course of a month or two, I must have spent 40 hours just sitting in his barbershop and other Harlem barbershops just observing. And what I found was that little boys, the youngest you know, kids who came into the shop, they were the ones who were most likely to read in the barbershop. And so that's kind of what informed you know, the focus on really using the barbershop to get, you know, young boys and, and young children to read. Excellent. I see you have a lot of new data as well. Can you tell me like about the new data you have that you um, completed in 2022? I, I see this is a barbershop books evaluation. That's a new thing you did, right? Yeah, we were very fortunate to receive um, a grant from the William Penn Foundation in Philadelphia. Right now, we have about 30 um, barbershop partners in Philadelphia who are participating in our program. And so um, that funding also included a $100,000 uh, independent evaluation 
uh, by Susan Newman, who is one of the country's leading uh, literacy researchers. She's an uh, NYU education professor. And so she completed uh, year one of the two-year study and, and produced a report. And it was it was extremely exciting, but also scary as she was doing the evaluation because you don't know. You know, I know that what we've seen around the country in terms of the impact of our program. So I was just really hopeful that what she observed and what the researchers that she worked with, it would, you know, align with what we've seen and it did. So she hired researchers uh, from a local HBCU in Philadelphia, because you can't have uh, random white students in black barbershops uh, sitting down observing folks. You know, that could uh, <laughs> create some 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 issues. Is, yes. I, I want to hear that board conversation. Uh, so yeah. so these students, these researchers uh, conducted observations in both uh, treatment sites, so barbershops that, you know, have the barbershop books program and also control sites, so barbershops that did not have our program. And what they found was that black boys were more likely to be observed reading than doing any other activity in the barbershop, including playing on a mobile device, watching TV, talking, uh, watch a lot of those different things. And so that was really exciting because as you know, in 2022, at any given moment, there's a lot of other things that, that any child could be doing other than reading. And so the fact that we kind of were able to create conditions in barbershops that kind of led boys to be more likely to read in barbershops than doing anything else was was really uh, positive and, and important. Um, also, they found that, you know, black boys were more likely to be observed reading independently than reading with a sibling, with a parent or with a barber. You know, not only are they reading, but they're kind of reading, you know, by themselves, whether someone's kind of making them read or asking them to read. And so that was encouraging. And then the last kind of key finding from her interim report was that, um, Black boys in our uh, participating barbershops were more likely to identify as readers than, you know, boys in barbershops that didn't have our program. And so that's really the core of our mission. You know, Barbershop Books, you know, core mission is really around, you know, inspiring black boys to read for fun and to identify as readers. And so to have an independent evaluation kind of affirm and confirm, you know, that was really major for us. And I'm excited because, you know, she's going to be doing the second year of the study. And so, you know, we're hopeful that we'll kind of get even more kind of insights and findings about kind of the way in which the Barbershop Books program is, you know, having a positive impact on Black boys. Wonderful. Now, Noe, do you have any questions? I I could go on, but I, my voice is so... Uh... I, I do have, okay. I'm going to talk to you about my niece who I told you, who gave me a thumbs down when I, I tried to give her a book. Oh, no. Yep. Yep. Oh, that yeah. is not surprising. Uh, she thought it was funny, oh, too. No. <laughs> um, and then what is she? I want to show you the picture. I'll find it in a second. But my niece, like, thinks it's funny to send me, like, these pictures of herself, you know, like, Disliking just, things, disliking right? books, mm -hmm. and I was like, so I remember I sent you a text, Alvin. I said, "What do I do?" Yeah, to get her to like turn this because I feel like there's outside, like you can do only so much, and then I don't know who she's around outside of me. How old is your niece again? Well, she's five. Right, right. But Lord had mercy, <laughs> five going on. <laughs> yes, I mean because. She did this this Christmas or this holiday. We watched 
because she watches TV a lot. And I try to prevent her from watching so much. Mm-hmm. And I think even she's gotten to a point where she's tired of watching TV and she turns it off. I've seen her do that. And I'm like, oh, if the child is turning it off because she's tired of it, that says something. Now, I know she used to have those little pads, those iPads for the kids. Where she watched the YouTube videos. Yes. She loves watching yeah. kids play. That's what kids do now. They like watching other kids. I don't get it, but <laughs> that broke. So she don't have that anymore, which is good. So like, I'm like, why don't we read a book? She's like, oh, TT. <laughs> I'm the book uncle. So that, like all my little nieces and nephews, you know, I was like, uh, what book do y'all want for uh, for for Christmas? <laughs> y- y'all let me know, you know, my uh, my my nephew who, you know, he's um in, in sixth grade now, and uh, I think he's 12. And, you know, I was asking him, you know, oh, what do you, what do you, uh, you know, what do you like studying? And he's like, oh, I used to like math. And I was like, you used to like math? And he was like, oh yeah, it's, it's hard now. It's hard. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, is important to me, you know, I think for all children to understand is that it's actually okay for things to be hard. And, Oftentimes, in order for people to get really good at something, it's not about things being easy for them or them, uh, you know, or just coming to them easy. It's about them just not stopping when it's hard. Like if you just literally I mean, you know, this Marina as a comedian, like, you, you know, you. You know, you may have been super funny or we may have been super funny at the very beginning, but. There's still a lot of ups and downs that that come. And like if you keep going that the trend line, right, the laughs, the, you know, the, the, the stage present, all that stuff continually goes up. If if. Wow. That is a very, very. This is my this is my nephew receiving a book compared to your parts niece receiving in a book. the wild. Parts <laughs> in the wild. But see, right. That book looks so silly. It looks so gross. Farts in the wild. That is exactly <laughs> why I wrote the children's book that I wrote, you know, Gross Greg, is uh, for that exact reason that, you know, too often, you know, what kids want to read. And honestly, you were talking about your niece. Unfortunately, if children have very limited reading experiences or just life experiences, they haven't been a lot of places, they haven't done a lot of things, and you would have asked them, what do they like to read? A lot of children would struggle to even articulate kind of what is it that they actually like. And so I think having opportunities to just learn and observe children and see kind of what are the things that kind of naturally pique their interest and to try and kind of use that as a launching pad. Boys grow silly. Those are kind of defaults for a lot of boys. Farts, Um, yes. (laughs) I played Fortnite with some 13-year-olds and it was all talks about farting yeah i shouldn't be playing fortnite my nephew has a favorite author and that book is by his favorite author but it's like all these different animal books where the animals have like very different personalities i forget the name of the author i'm trying to look right now but yeah that his mom got him that she likes pumpkins (laughs) i don't know what that's about but she loves pumpkins and she loves halloween so i'm i should be focusing i you're right alvin like i haven't taken a if real she likes pumpkins in what she's and she just you know it's all about the pumpkins then you can make 
uh, pumpkin pie with her, although I'm a sweet potato pie <laughs> person myself. Uh, and then you can buy her some pumpkin, or go cheaper, buy her some pumpkin seeds and buy her a book about pumpkins. Oh, and bro. now there's, you know, you make it real, you make it engaging, you know, but that would be my first thing. There, I mean, children, even if they don't express it, you know, when you observe them, you can see kind of inklings of what are the things that that kind of spark their curiosity. You know, I think that, you know, related to kind of some of the stuff I'd share with you about, you know, the state of reading right now. I mean, I don't know if people really understand the dire state of reading proficiency in America right now. I mean, it was black and brown, you know, black and Latino children were on the struggle bus in terms of reading before the pandemic. But right now, it really is, you know, at catastrophic levels after all the kind of what they call learning loss, you know, that happened during the pandemic where so many children didn't go to preschool. Some of them may not have been in kindergarten. Many of them didn't have access to regular instruction. And now, you know, schools are trying to play catch up for kids who were already in many cases behind. But I think that everybody right now is, you know, really locked in, including the mayor of New York City and, and the chancellor. Everybody's locked in on phonics and phonemic awareness and, you know, ensuring that children kind of have the building blocks of literacy, meaning you can you understand the different sounds that letters make. You understand how those sounds fit together so that you can actually pronounce words. Right. But the fault. Well, so yeah. why did if the mayor isn't uh, down for this, the fight, then why is he defunding all the libraries? You know what? That is a very interesting irony. Uh, that is a very interesting irony. And I think that it's important to highlight things that are a step in the right direction. But I think it's also important to hold people accountable and to point out the areas where they're taking a step backwards. But I do think that, you know, it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And to be able to say, you know, people for, for I mean, now a few decades were caught up or, or in, you know, the, the teacher's college uh, and Lucy Cockins kind of curriculum that just kind of encouraged kids to look at pictures and kind of guess at the, the words. And that works well when all the books have pictures, but as soon as you start to transition away from pictures, if you don't have the proficiency to be able to sound out words, to actually break down words, then, you know, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you don't have the basic skills that you need. But at the same time, if you only focus on phonics and phonemic awareness and being able to pronounce and sound out words, but you don't have the vocabulary or the world knowledge, it's very difficult to sound out and comprehend words you've never heard. Yes. Right. I have a I have a story about that in my own life. So I so I come from a family where my sisters like both excelled. My older sis my older sisters. Um, they were gifted and it was clear they were gifted early on. I, on the other hand, I was a more shy child. And it wasn't that I didn't know how to read because I did. I would have to, I come from the era where you would ha have to type in code just to use a computer. And I was doing that at three or four. So I obviously knew how to read. I knew how to write. But to my parents, they thought I didn't know. They thought I was slow. They didn't know that I was so good at reading, even though I was doing these things that should include them in. They had me on like hooked on phonics, things like that. But I was like your niece. Uh, Marina, where I really liked macabre things. Like I love the R.L. Stein books. My mom started to notice that. She'd buy me those. 
But it wasn't until I was in fifth grade when a teacher pointed out that I was reading actually at a high school level when I was 10 years old. And I was just so shy. I didn't feel like I was as smart as my sisters because they, you know, they were the types of kids that would like skip, skip a grade. One of them got a perfect score on the SATs, all the things like that. They probably like to read aloud too. (laughs) Yes, they like to read aloud. And I was very shy. So most of the reading I was doing was by myself when no one was in the computer room, when no one was around me. Um, And when you go to schools as a black or brown child, you're already looked at as less than, especially if you have siblings that went to those same schools and excelled. So they had me in remedial classes I didn't need to be in, remedial reading, because there's this added layer of racism. If you're not the best in the class, then you're the worst if you're a black or a brown kid. So I had all these teachers who didn't even want to spend time to realize what my fifth grade teacher eventually realized, Mr. Brady, RIP, very good teacher, um, because they just looked at me and I was one of the few uh, black or brown or Asian, anything kids, uh, non-white kids in my elementary schools. Well, I shouldn't say all of them, the ones once I moved to the Northeast. So there was that added layer of like racism, the way I was perceived anyway. So a lot of these children, I just feel like as a black or brown child, if you're not the best, then you're just looked at as the worst. And that makes you even more timid when it comes to reading or or showing that you have skills in any way. Yeah, that was a, that was a really tough thing for me growing up. It, it felt so good to finally be validated. Honestly, I love standardized testing because it showed finally that I was very smart. And standardized testing was like the first time uh, where I had a something in hand yeah. that I could show people proof that I was very Objective intelligent. proof, right? Every student yeah. takes the same yes. test. But you know, th- w- w- the story that you're sharing is exactly why we're building out this EdTech platform is to pretty much generate strength-based data, right? So much of reading today, reading interventions, reading programs, reading assessments, they really are deficit-based, meaning that they focus on what students don't know and what students can't do. And, okay, according to the U.S. Department of Education, you know, over 82%, I think, over over 80%. I think it's like 85%. Yeah, yeah. it's like... Yeah, yeah. after the pandemic, it definitely has gone back up, but probably somewhere around 85 or more percent, according to the U.S. Department of Education, of black and Latino students in fourth grade are not proficient in reading, according to them, right? This is one third of American children demonstrate proficiency in reading. Yeah, that means that over 60 percent of all kids, right? So so 30 percent. But then when you look at, you know, black and Latino kids, it's you know, almost half of that. So we're talking about between 10 and 15% of black and Latino kids are proficient in reading. But here's my thing. No matter what those statistics say, you can't tell me, nobody can tell me that those students don't have knowledge, they don't have interest, and they don't have, you know, lived experiences that can be leveraged to kind of make reading and learning more relevant, more engaging, and then ultimately to help them to become more proficient. The problem is that so much of the curriculums, the assessments, they're not even looking. They're not looking 
for the strengths. They're not looking for the interest. And so that's what, you know, people are like, oh, you get boys to read. And it's like, the reason why those boys are choosing to read in a barbershop is not because we're geniuses at barbershop books. That's not it. Our books are curated based on actual book recommendations from black boys. We actually ask little black boys what they like to read. We ask them what they actually read and we use those insights to actually inform. And so I really do believe that if we can find ways to systematically gather and collect the interests the knowledge and the and, and insights about the lived experiences of children, we can begin to curate content that actually makes them identify as readers and that makes them want to read. But also, it can help these teachers to stop with all this whackness, all these whack lessons, you know, all this stuff, and to start creating the type of reading experiences that will make kids really want to read for fun. I'm going to stop preaching. Uh, no, that's good, though. <laughs> Legislation is in their best interest to encourage reading because reading is the best thing for this is a quote, but reading is the best thing for children because it develops their emotional intelligence as well as overall intelligence, plus shows them that there's more out there in the world than just their 10 block radius and the city of Philadelphia. So they'll make better decisions when tempted to do something bad. You know, critical thinking and higher order thinking skills are so critical in any democracy. And I think that reading is, is where a lot of that stuff starts. But as we're learning now, it's not just only reading, but the ability to read and think critically, right? A lot of these, these people that have, you know, done these shootings and all these things, you know, one of the common threads is that many of them found themselves going down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, and not all of them were just watching YouTube. Some of them probably did get, you know, YouTube PhDs, but some of them also were reading articles, right, about these various topics. And so, you know, as I think about what you just said around the importance of reading and expanding kids, kind of what I like to call their realm of possibility and their curiosity, I think that we also have to think about the realities in which many children live and grow up in. And I remember talking to a parent, you know, she was a, a white, a white mother. And she said that what she wants most for her children is that they're for them to be curious. And I remember my thinking about my mom who was a black single mom and an elementary school teacher for more than 30 years in the Little Rock school district. And I'm sure she wouldn't want me to, to, to kind of finally say this, but I remember in elementary school and middle school, my grades were not her top priority. It was my behavior. You know, she was like, Alvin, I don't want them calling up to my job because you at school acting a fool. She, you know, at that time, and let's say 1993, right? Little Rock was the murder capital of the United States. The murder capital. Per capita, there were more homicides in Little Rock, Arkansas than in Chicago, then in New York City, then LA, because of the gangs and the crack and all of this stuff. And so for my mom, she was like, I want my son not to be in gangs. I want to make sure he lives, right? He doesn't get caught up in all these things. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that often isn't acknowledged or thought about is that everybody doesn't have the same luxury around curiosity, right? A little black boy 
you know, playing make-believe in the park with a play gun is very different than a little white boy playing make-believe with a gun, a play gun in a park. And I think that, you know, schools should be a safe place. It should be a safe place to do the type of curiosity, you know, but I think that when schools, teachers, educators, and even parents are using a kind of deficit-based lens to think about their own children, right, to think about the students in their classroom, then it can cause children like you who are absolutely smart in their own ways and who have things that are of interest to them, it can just cause those things to not be valued. And it, it breaks my heart. And that's one of the reasons why Barbershop Books is unapologetically child-centered. Where you get your books from? How do you choose these books? Oh, we just, we just ask black boys. <laughs> but, but we think, and we're like, you know what? We really value your input. But our model really centers the input of black boys and of, of children. And you know what? It's okay. It's really okay. And I think that how do we get policymakers? You know, I think it's difficult because the money, you know, the testing industry, all of these assessments and professional, all of this stuff often is operating out of a deficit-based framework. And so I think that, I don't think we're going to be able to you know, replace this deficit framework, nor do I think it necessarily needs to be. You know, I think that it's important to know what letters a child doesn't know. It's important to know what letter sounds a child doesn't know so that you can target, you know, strategically those areas, but those shouldn't be a child's only. A child shouldn't come to school only to hear about what they can't do and what they don't know. What I'm proposing and what Barbershop Books is really, you know, working toward and advocating for is that we just simply complement some of the kind of deficit-based frameworks that are, are being used with strength-based frameworks that create more opportunity to affirm who children are when they walk through the door. You know, so many children come into a classroom and literally just the way they sound, the way they talk, if you you know, happen to grow up in a family where standard English is spoke, all of a sudden you get treated as if you're smarter for something you have no control over. Whereas children who maybe grow in a home, grow up in a home where no one speaks standard English and their, you know, verbs or nouns or whatever don't agree. Now, all of a sudden they're not smart and it has nothing to do with their intelligence and everything to do with what's modeled for them. I, I actually, so I, I'm Nigerian and my parents came over here in the eighties and my oldest sister is the reason why none of us speak our, our native language Kalabari because they were teaching her Kalabari because my parents speak multiple languages. They, you know, they had to speak all the tribal languages around their tribal language and they were forced to learn English. They had to learn Latin when they went to those boarding schools, all sorts of things. So they were trying to teach my oldest sister Kalabari. And we now know that when children, small children are processing um, multiple languages, they will take a break from talking to process everything that they're learning and then they'll continue. So she started talking early before one. And then all of a sudden around two and a half, she stopped. She stopped talking. And the doctors at the time, and I think she was in Alabama at the time, they, you know, they were like, oh, stop speaking Kalbari to her because 
she's having trouble. Now we know that's not true. Now we know she's just processing languages. So my parents, after that, they got afraid and they didn't teach the rest of us our native language. Like we can understand it, but we don't speak it fluently. That institutionalized (laughs) racism and how it plays out in people's lives it really is is real. And that's why all this CRT, you know, critical race theory, oh, we got to remove it. It's like people don't understand the ramifications of white supremacy when it is embedded in institutions. Um, and, and that, you know, I mean, what you're saying now and now you're an adult and this part of your culture, you're not able to connect with it. And this and this it's what breaks my heart about reading is that there are children that if you just created the right conditions, if you just gave them access to the right types of content or you just modeled it by somebody that resonates with them or that's relatable to them, it literally could be the difference between them graduating from college or not, them going to prison or not, them growing up to be healthy and happy and productive or not. And it sometimes is about a decision that someone else made about whether or not they are smart or whether or not they're this or whether or not they're that. Um, wow, you know, that's thanks for sharing. What, what you're saying about systemic racism, it wasn't until I was in Syracuse and studying about the Civil War uh, for my thesis, which... I always talk about how I accidentally did a Civil War reenactment on the wrong side, but that's another story. Um, But the books, it it was crazy that I didn't know. It is embarrassing to even acknowledge or say this here. I did not know until I was in college that it was actually illegal for us to learn how to read and write during the Civil War and slavery times that you could be killed for reading a book. And so when we talk about like equality and fairness and reparations, right? Like all of the things you're talking about, Alvin, those things, like I was watching the, I got to give them credit, the Monday um, earn your leisure guys and how they do the Monday markets. And they were talking about how this financial information is purposely not given to you. Like, these things are intended to keep us in a certain place. So when I talk about policies, uh, how do we uh, appeal to white people, right? Because we, in a, they're here. So we got to figure it out. You know, it's like they don't understand it's in their best interest. I think they think it's in their best interest for us not to be able to learn how to read or not have financial information. But when you talk about the crimes in Little Rock or you talk about the crime, I hear on Fox News, when I do hear on Fox News, is there a go, they're like, there's nowhere to hide anymore. There's nowhere safe anymore. Well, that's because that lack of education has expanded to everybody in the and United the States. The inequity, you know, it's, it's expanded. I mean, I don't want to hear nothing nobody talk about about how hard they work. You telling me a single parent mother working two or three jobs? You you telling me? But it's the notion of meritocracy that I think you're hitting at, Marina. This idea that I'm where I am simply because I worked hard. Everybody loves to talk about that part of the American dream and these notions of meritocracy. But what people often don't want to acknowledge is that in order for that to be true, right, that you are where you are simply 
because you worked hard, it means that anyone who is not where you are, it's simply because they didn't work hard. And I think that, you know, we all do have agency, but I think that, you know, those kind of very simplistic, you know, ways of thinking about things really don't allow for acknowledgement of these institutional. Like when I look at, you know, you hear these articles about, you know, Wells Fargo and the criminality of their lending practices. If you start garnishing someone's check and they get evicted, right? And they lose their job because you started illegally garnishing their check on a loan that shouldn't have even been at that interest rate. You shouldn't, you know, like the ramifications in society, the trauma caused by that child who's now acting up in school because their mom is, you know, or dad is stressed out. Like people often don't want to think about this, but I refinanced my uh, home. I bought a home in Atlanta and I refinanced my home at the end of 2020, right? And it blew my mind because I went from a 30-year mortgage to a 15-year mortgage. And at the end of 2020, there were record low interest rates, right? So I did the math. By reducing my mortgage from 30-year to 15-year, and with the interest rates being what it was and my credit being what it was or whatever, I ended, I will end up saving almost $200,000 over the life of the loan. Now, what does this mean? You know what it made me think about? When I saw articles showing that there were a significant amount of black homeowners who were rejected for refinancing during the pandemic, who attempted or applied to be, to get, you know, to refinance their homes. And they were, you know, essentially discriminated against because of they were black. It literally is like banks stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars in wealth and intergenerational wealth from black families. And so, you know, to hear people say, you know, oh, institutionalized racism doesn't exist, you know, it really ignores the, the need for the policy changes and the accountability that needs to be put in place to help prevent, you know, you can't prevent everything, you can't, you know, but I do believe that at least, at least there should be penalties. You know, this guy Santos, right? You can't prevent people from lying, but you 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 can at least say that the the requirements that we hold federal employees to, right? If you lie on a, on an application for a federal job, you know not only will you not get the job, but you could potentially be prosecuted for lying. Well, we should make them submit a resume. If you're a senator, a basic resume, and say if it's determined that stuff you put on your resume is purposefully misleading. Well, guess what? Deuces. You know, that's simple. And all of us have to apply to those rules when we go and try and apply for places. But yet, in these powerful echelons of society, somehow they're getting passes on basic stuff. I'm sorry. Deion Sanders. No, no, no. You're right. Because that story is, that story is crazy. And the fact that that's that law is not in the books is insanity. Um, I just thought this would be a good place to mention this article with Deion Sanders revealing startling statistics about HBCU donations. Deion Sanders recently sat down with Shannon Sharp during his show. I mean, I mean, like not recently, but, you know, within weeks of this recording, Club Shay Shay and address a few questions 
He says the pair touched on why they're underfunded HBCUs as opposed to predominantly white institutions. The key point that was mentioned was that HBCU alumni donors only account for 7% who give directly back to their alma maters. So I didn't go to the HBCU. So, you know, a lot of times I feel like left out in the HBCU conversation because my dad was like, you're going to, you're not going to an HBCU. Okay. You're going to, you're going to be in the real world. You're going to a regular school, you know, and I was like a regular school. I was like, okay. Mm. My but, parents um, taught at a lot of HBCUs, but I didn't end up going to one, but I, my parents taught at them. So yeah, I always feel a bunch out. of them. <laughs> it is interesting because he goes, he wants to do an investigation. Like he was going to hire a team to investigate exactly what was going on. That's so interesting because when you look at black giving per capita, black, the black community, they actually, African-American, they actually give more per capita than any other group in the United States. I'm talking about donations, but when you look at what they give to, church is like one of the number is number one. But then right under that is like colleges and, and schools and things like that. But I think one of the things that, you know, you have to think about as it relates to giving is, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's a lot like I've graduated from two. Uh, well, I have two master's degrees. Right. And I also have an undergraduate degree. Right. Now, I have given back to the undergraduate institution because when I left there, they gave me so much student loans and I had so many opportunities that I, you know, I mean, when, when, when I started Barbershop Books, right, and I graduated from grad school and Barbershop Books was making almost no revenue, right, and I was trying to figure out, you know, should I just take a full-time job somewhere and just try and do Barbershop Books on the side, and I decided, you know what? I have a little bit of money saved up. I'm just going to work on barbershop books full time until I run out of money. I'm just going to, even though I have all these student loans, I'm just going to. And Grinnell College came through with a $25,000 grant, an alumni service award. And that little bit of money allowed me to keep living and keep working full time on barbershop books until I was able to get a little bit of grant money. And I've been working on barbershop books full-time ever since. But one of the things that I think about is if a lot of, I bet that if you look at how much student loan debt, you know, how many, uh, what those students, uh, the alumni, you know, it's probably high. And so it's a lot, when you have, when you owe all this money for an education, I'm sure it makes you a little less interested and, and, and willing to want to give, right? If you got to pay student uh, loan debt. Yeah, listen, like, so my, um, when I first moved to New York, I got a job uh, as a paralegal for the state and I could not take that job because I called, so I'm in my thirties and I was in my thirties when I moved to New York. I called my university, uh, shout out to UMass Amherst, and I needed a copy of my transcript. And I've gotten a copy of my transcript from them before. So, but I just didn't feel like looking for it. I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to find it. I just needed a copy of my transcript. It was a, like an entry level paralegal job, but I really wanted it because it was a state job. They refused to give it to me because I owed money for a library book. And then these people are going to turn around and try to ask me for money. No, ma'am. <laughs> but that's a, that's like a white state school. 
Uh, they have some black you people. You might be surprised at, at, at the, the lengths that, you know, institutions go through to to get their money. But I think this is what people don't want to realize, right? A lot of students going to HBCUs don't have a lot of wealth to start with. Then they are saddled with loans because many of those institutions don't have the endowments, right, of, of some of these other institutions to cover more of the expenses for low-income students. And so then they're graduating, and I don't know what the placement rates are or what the average salaries are for any of the students, but I think that those things do factor in. I mean, if you look at the statistics nationwide, we can already guess what they are. We can already guess that we're making a lot less than our white counterparts, especially if you're a black woman. So of course we don't have, and you already mentioned a, a key factor too, the churches. I don't want to get into that, but they're, they're taking a lot of our money as well. But, <laughs> but we don't have the funds to be giving. But I want to bring up too, I don't know if you remember what happened with Howard University, where they found out that the president was was taking funds. So there might be some, I really hope Dion does do this investigation because I bet you will find a lot of that too. You will find a lot of nefarious things going on. Listen, I worked for the um, housing department. I had two different jobs in the housing department at UMass Amherst when I was trying to get some graduate credits. And one of the places I worked, they had a lot of money. It was wild. Like I, I was the one that was uh, the first step in hiring RAs and RDs, actually mostly RDs. So I'd read their um, resumes and then I'd set up uh, the schmoozing dinners and all that stuff. And I was just like, where is all this money coming from? I finally talked to my boss about it. And she's like, oh yeah, we're the wealthiest department on campus. And I was like, what do you mean? Aren't all the funds shared? And she like laughed at me essentially and said, oh, no, no, no. We have endowments from like years back, going back to when the school was started, when it was just Amherst. Yeah. Old, old money. But just that one segment of the housing department and the other areas of the housing department didn't have that money, which is so weird to me. So they're raising the price of housing every year because they didn't share funds. So there's a lot of shady stuff but that goes on But you know what? Shady stuff, it is certainly, and I want to make sure this is clear, it ain't limited to And HBCUs. it was slave money. Let's just say that. Well, before you finish, <laughs> yeah. I just want to make sure you have, do you have like 15 minutes? Me? Alvin? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm here. I, I blocked out time. What I was going to say is that HBCUs, they're so not, fair. you know, they, of course, have their challenges, but... You know, shady stuff. You know, that there was an NYU uh, director of finance who recently just got, I don't know if she's been convicted yet, but she definitely, you know, they found out she took like three million and remodeled this and was doing this. And so, you know, I, I mean, that's the sad thing about greed, you know, and about all these inequities we're talking about. In the United States, we have more than enough money to ensure that every child can go to preschool, to ensure that mothers uh, and families have daycare that's affordable, to make sure that kid, every child can have free lunch when they go to school. We have the money. You know, we have the money so that anybody can walk into a hospital and just get basic life-saving surgeries or care, but it's not about having the money, it's about whether there's a collective will and whether there's a shared kind of uh, mutual 
interest in other people's well-being. And I think that that whole notion of meritocracy, you know, and the belief that, well, you know, I earn what I have. And so, you know, if you struggle and it's just because you you need to do something else, you need to work. You know, I think that that really fuels so much of this fallacy that that exists. You know, it's not real. You know, that people, you know, we all have benefited. My mom was a teacher, right? The fact that she, even though she didn't want me to uh, get in any trouble, you know, it still wasn't acceptable for me to be failing. It's still, you know, she's still at a basic level of like, you need to make sure you're, 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 you're taking care of things at school. And so I think that we take for granted a lot of those kinds of things that often get modeled for us, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly that contribute to our success. Well, it's a part of the activism. I love this article that was put in about how black activists in Northern Virginia transformed the way children learn to read, the way the NAACP is getting involved. Do they do? Have they recognized you? The NAACP, do you have interactions with them? No, no, I I don't think that that we um, have have uh, been recognized or or had any any um, connections. But, you know, but. We have been recognized. You know, there it's always great, right? Any opportunity you, you know, as an organization you have to kind of share your mission and vision with the public gives you an opportunity to attract new potential fundraisers or friends, right, of the organization who can lend their insights, their advice, their support or elbow grease, you know. Um, but no, we, yeah, we haven't um, been acknowledged. So in this article, it says the school district leaders committed to swift, radical change in Fairfax said the NAACP would flood the Internet with your poor reading scores for black and brown students if you don't take this seriously. The activists later wrote an open letter which has been described as non-optional and provided an immediate catalyst, there's my word, for change to be implemented in schools. For example, kindergarten through second grade teachers were given lessons incorporating phonics, which they were told to implement immediately. Elementary school administrations also started training in um, L-E-T-R-S. What is that? Oh, yeah, it was an acronym. Oh, letters. Letters. That's that's a a systematic phonics and phonemic instruction uh, program. So letters is is how they're going to implement the phonics. Yeah. Um, Yep. It's also the, yeah. one of the reasons why they chose that one is because of the science of reading that that has shown that providing children systematic finest instruction and gives them that basic foundational uh, literacy uh, competency to be able to read proficiency. So, yeah, that's 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 important that they're using research informed programs. Yeah, it says, I love the list that you gave us, the reading being reimagined. Is that something you're a part of? No, reading uh, reimagined is an initiative by the uh, Advanced uh, Education um, Research and Development um, Fund, which, you know, I guess they have, I don't don't know, I guess they, people came together to, to, for this initiative to reimagine kind of what should reading look like uh, to accelerate reading proficiency, particularly for Black, Latino, and Native American children. And they really just kind of looked at the research and and tried to kind of outline kind of a path forward. And, you know, what I took away from, you know, that amazing kind of concept paper that they put together was that, one, 
phonics and phonemic awareness, you know, systematic phonics and phonemic awareness instruction is critical. It is critical to ensuring that children have the foundational skills they need to be proficient readers. But it also outlines that vocabulary and world knowledge is critical. And in addition to those kind of foundational skills, they talked about the need for the development of assessments and instruction related to non-academic um, elements of kind of learning and reading, such as identity, uh, such as, you know, and just to make it more specific, like reading identity, reading self-efficacy, which is a child's thinking about their ability to read, right? Because little kids who don't even know how to read yet may feel like a reader and they'll talk to you about the pictures those kind of non-academic elements of, of reading are important. Reading engagement, reading motivation. And I would argue that for children who don't have support in reading and learning outside of school, for some of those children, those kind of non-skill elements of reading and learning may end up being even more important because those children have to be the most motivated because they don't have anybody. So if they're not motivated, there's no one there to make sure they learn, to make sure they're reading outside of school. And so if you only focus on, you know, things that are related to what they're not good at, it could end up decreasing their motivation. And no matter how good you are, no matter how good the curriculum, if children aren't engaging in reading and learning when they leave school, their progress is going to be slow. And so that's one of the things I really liked about the Reading Reimagine initiative is that they're moving beyond a kind of silver bullet, you know, type of approach or thinking where it's like, okay, phonics, phonics is this, this is the silver bullet that's going to help all the kids read. They're like, actually, yes, the skill-based stuff is critical, but we also need to make sure that we're thinking about strength-based, asset-based, you know, I actually really like the letters too. I just had to like refresh what it was because I read it last night and I had forgotten. But that is geared towards the teachers, mm -hmm. teaching the teachers basic linguistic yep. skills because not all educators go to school for linguistics. They don't know how to speak to individual students that come from different nationalities and backgrounds. So that's very cool, that letters. So yeah, it's like language essentials for teachers of reading and spelling, which is great. I think that's a good thing to do. As Mississippi well, used it yeah. to like, I don't, well, Mississippi used to be at the, at the bottom of, for reading, like, you know, they were like 50 or 49. Are they not like, anymore? Oh no. They passed, uh, Wilmington. They passed a whole lot of States and it's specifically really? wow. because they implemented uh, not only these kind of systematic phonics instruction programs, but they have worked with the colleges of education within the state to ensure that new teachers, current teachers have been trained in a lot of the science of reading uh, and that they're using curriculums. And so they have passed a whole lot of other states and are on their way to really leading the country which is, you know, when you think of Mississippi, great. you don't think about yeah. them as leading the country in anything no, related to education, but they prioritize it and the professional yeah. development for the teachers was a real turning point for their state in terms of them being able to kind of 
you know, being attorney, you know, them being able to make significant gains. Now you see when it's a Republican state like uh, or when Republicans have anything to do with the law, this article I thought was interesting. Black poor students held back at a higher rate under Michigan reading law. Black students from low income homes were more than twice as likely in Michigan to have to repeat the third grade compared with their white and wealthier peers who also were identified for retention because they struggled with reading. Overall, black students and students from low income homes are more likely to be flagged for retention based on reading test scores. But researchers with the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative at Michigan State University found that greater proportions of these students are actually repeating third grade. And these are policies that are put in place that they're trying to get rid of. And it says here, Michigan's read by grade three law passed in uh, by Republicans in 2016 required schools to identify struggling readers and provide early intervention. This is what they call early intervention. The rule requiring students be held back was part of that law. So I actually pulled a quote from this article that like really resonated with me a lot because I see my sister going through the same thing. She lives in Illinois. She has two kids now. And somebody, so there's a Ham, the family called the Hampton family from this article was saying that, uh, so the mom is Indian American and the husband is black. And before their daughter went to school, they made sure she was reading because they were afraid that she was not going to get the same education. She was going to get held back, even if she just struggled a little bit. And I feel like that's something that black and brown families have dealt all the time. Or you told you what happened to me, where if you are not excelling at things, they're going to call you dumb and, and look at you completely differently than the white students. And I mean, this is just, this is, this is evidence. This is evidence that that's happening. I had happening. this similar yeah. experience, Noye, in high school. I was, uh, I was never a good tester though. So I, test scores would never have helped me because I, I think I had an attention problem. I've never been diagnosed with ADD, but I had definitely a, a focus issue in school. I remember even being in school and being like, I can't do it. But, um, cause I would be after lunch. I had too much sugar. They should take sugar out of the school anyway. But, um, my teachers, thank God for the few, they were like you, I was in the tracking system. They had me in the lower tracking system and like I was killing it in class like because I was so like math. I was like, you know, I was just, it was so easy for me. And so the teachers would be like, we don't think you're supposed to be in this. I'll never forget. Like they were like, why don't you talk to your um, counselor? And she was discouraging me from moving up into another tracking system. So I had to. And I remember not not understanding the gravity of all of it. I was just doing it on my own. I don't even think my parents knew. I didn't communicate it to them that this was going on. I don't remember it anyway. Maybe I did and I don't remember. But I remember her disapproval of me wanting to get into a higher track I mean, and I was like not even in the middle one. I was in the higher one. And the teachers were like, you should be in like AP classes. Like yep. you're much smarter. That happened to me too. Yep. And I and I got into the, his, it was a um, history. AP history. History and thought where, 
And and I was I remember being in the class with all of these kids that were had been tracked to do this all the time. And I remember them looking at me like I was an experiment, but they were proud of me. But I had to really, really fight for that on my own. And I was in a freshman in high school. I had to really fight. And I remember the teachers going, we don't understand why she's giving you this, you know, problem. We don't understand why your counselor is not advocating. We'll, we'll, we'll vouch for you. Did the demographics so the- of the class change, Marina, when you switched into the advanced class? I know it did for me. I'm curious. Like the racial the makeup demographics of the yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I remember like there were other black students that were in that class, but for some reason, like, you know, like it, they were there. But I mean, our school, ironically, was toted in the New York in the Sunday Times, sorry, Chicago, as being the most diverse high school. But the track was the utopia was segregated. I I bet that's at my high school in Little Rock. You know, I remember a whole semester of 10th grade English. All we did was read short stories and do spelling lists in 10th grade English. And I remember after a semester, the only thing I had learned was that my teacher thought OJ was innocent. And I remember thinking I've never been in 10th grade, but I feel like there might be more (laughs) to 10th grade English than what I'm getting. And so I, similar to you, I went to my counselor and I said, listen, I don't think I'm supposed to have a hundred in a class. Like this is too easy. And the kids are complaining about the little work we have to do. Can you switch me into any other class? I didn't know anything about all the options. We, I get into pre-AP. I don't think in 10th grade, they let us do AP, but pre-AP, we had to read two novels. We had to write two book reports. And I was like, where did all these white kids come from? In the regular classes, it was all black and Latino. But when I switched into this advanced class, all of a sudden, there were all these others. And I'm forever, forever grateful to two black women. I was a sophomore. They were both juniors. Uh, Leah Watson and Sherelle Williams. They each came up to me independent of each other and said, Alvin, I think you're really smart. I think you should take AP U.S. History with Ms. Green. And the other one was like, I think you should take AP English with Ms. McKinnon. It wasn't a counselor. It wasn't my mama. It wasn't even my closest friend. It was these two black girls who were a, a year ahead of me. And I remember thinking, why are these girls coming up to me you know, giving me these unsolicited recommendations. And I decided to take those classes and them being fine had nothing to do with it, right? Had nothing to do with it. But I was just thinking like, you know, what if they hadn't, for whatever reason, saw something in me that made them feel that I would be receptive to them recommending that I take classes that would mean more work, you know? And so I think that one of the ways that we have to, you know, when we talk about activism, one of the things that I think needs to happen is there needs to be more space and opportunities in school for peer-to-peer encouragement and modeling, especially when you get to that age, who your friends are, what they're doing, what's important, what's valued. A lot of that stuff plays out in terms of what you value. And so I think that making smart, making reading, making learning, making curiosity 
a part of the school culture is, is one of the ways in which we start to really shift these negative trends toward a positive, in a positive direction. Yeah. Like the book, like both of you, my high school had like the rungs, but they had four levels. So it was like remedial. Then it was like average, I guess. And then they had college level, which is where I pretty much stayed. And then AP where I had like a couple AP classes. So that was it. But I would say that the black students were most mostly in the AP and college level. And then the Portuguese students, which were our brown students, um, were usually in like the remedial. And it was it was because their first language was not English. And that was literally the only reason, because these kids were very smart. And a lot of them wouldn't want to move out of those classes because that's where their friends were, like what you're saying. And I remember having a conversation with one of them uh, because I knew he was smart. He was in one of my geometry courses. And I was like, this guy is like, he's smart. I remember having a conversation with him when he got put into a remedial class. I walked into the remedial class when I was walking by. I was just like, why are you in here? And he was just like, basically he shooed me aside, told me to leave because he didn't want to leave that class because it was easy. <laughs> and that's what happens to kids though. They're like, okay, well, if they're just going to let me do this easy stuff and they don't think about how that's going to affect them if they want to go to college or anything like that because they are getting less credits for A's that they're getting in those remedial they're not going to graduate with a 4.0 because they're starting at a lower rank. Amaya has a question for you, if you want to answer. She says, how do you stop feeling less than compared to your white peers? Even now, I still suffer from imposter syndrome, even though I'm considered successful and intelligent. Well, I mean, one for me, black women like like I since high school. Right. Having. Those smart black girls say to me, Alvin, you should be doing this. That gave me, I think, a type of confidence, you know, uh, that that, you know, I, I don't know, you know, that I had um, and that I think even now, I think having people who affirm and encourage me not for a like, not for, you know, TV or something, but just sending me words of encouragement. I think that's important. Um, but another thing I was going to say is that when I was in high school and I was in those regular classes, you know, in 10th grade, I snuck into some of the uh, when the college reps would come and visit the school to talk to the juniors and seniors about college. I snuck in and I heard one of these reps say, we would rather a student make a B in an AP class than make an A in a regular class. And I was like, really? Why? And they said, we look to see what, what is the most rigorous classes available at your school. And we want to see to what extent you challenge yourself. That blew my mind because I think I had a similar mindset of that student I mean, that one class, I was just bored out of my mind. But once I heard that, I was like, oh, crap. Well, maybe I need to be thinking about my schedule differently. But it took an outside person, not my mom, not a teacher, not even a classmate. But that was an added kind of like perspective that I think helped me. Yeah, I think that would help Amaya also like seeing like the like conversations like this with people who've had similar experiences you are going through currently 
will help you to relieve the imposter syndrome because we are all going through that as black individuals. No, there's no, there's none of us that haven't been questioned about our status as a comic, as a performer. You know, when we get to a certain position, they go, oh, she's getting it because they look lack of diversity. That's always something they're throwing at us. But I think it's also looking back in history at the disadvantages and the whites, the of how white people in America, the ones who have done this, have intentionally held back information, made reading a crime for black individuals, financially. White banks are criminals. They are gangsters and thugs. So when you look at America, it's a crime what they've done to us. So whenever they look at you and they say, oh, you, you're getting this because, you know, you're black. It's like, well, you're getting this because you're a fucking crimp. Sorry, because you're a criminal. <laughs> no, it's true, though. Literally. You're, you're I- a gangster. You're a thug. Yep. You have raped the system. I so I remember that's the first, what you say. I remember the first time somebody exactly preach. I remember the first time somebody tried to come with come to me with that bullshit. I was in high school. Um, I'd made JV no varsity uh, cheerleading for the basketball season, and one of my friends and her mom, white girl and her mom white, have the nerve to say to me, "Oh, they didn't put you on the team because of diversity," and I was like, "Well, they put you on the team because you're white." And they were like, oh, you don't believe affirmative action? And at the time, I I had been reading about affirmative action. I went on to study it in college, and I knew that it benefited white women more. Yeah, and that's I was the like, same guys- thing with the women in minority-owned <laughs> business, is that you have, you know, yeah. white men uh, giving their wives, uh, you know, jobs and, and claiming that they're owners so that they can access the, the woman and minority owned, you know, opportunities. Another thing I would like to say, Amaya, in terms of, you know, what you can do around imposter syndrome and things like that is, you know, I really think that um, it's important to really like evaluate your strengths and weaknesses. And, and what I mean is that we're not all good at everything. We all have challenges. When I was in grad school, working on my second master's at NYU, I was in a financial management class for my MPA, and I had an an anxiety attack during the test. My mind went blank, my heart started beating through my chest, right? And uh, I didn't even finish the test, and I was like, oh my God, I knew how to do the last two questions, I didn't even get to them. And I went to the professor and was like, you know, I'm pretty sure I just flunked this exam, but I think I had some kind of anxiety attack or, or something. And he said, well, maybe you should go speak to the mental health center. I went to speak to the mental health center and they were like, well, is this something that you've suffered with for a long time? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I get a little distracted or anxious doing a test, but I usually take a few deep breaths and I'm able to refocus, but it didn't happen. When I went and looked back at my undergraduate, yeah, I looked at my grades I looked and I realized literally every class that had uh, tests as the final, I had B's or C's. And every class where I had a paper as a final, it was almost all A's. And I said, oh crap, maybe I had been having test anxiety the whole time, 
But I never thought about it. And so what the mental health center said to me, they were like, well, would you like, uh, how much extra time would you like? And I was like, extra time? I was like, well, what do you mean? And they were like, well, students who, you know, suffer from test anxiety, you can actually get a separate quiet location. You can get earplugs and you can get more time. You can get one time, two times. I was like, well, let me get that one and a half. I think I don't think I need two times. Like, let me just get that one and a half. And I kid you not, moving forward, I had like a 2.9, right? And then after I started getting this quiet space and more time, I had above like a 3.5 the rest of my time in grad school. And so in, I was so busy, you know, I'd never been diagnosed with anything, you know, I always just thought, I just need to study more. I just need to study more. And I think that often part of the imposter syndrome can lead us not to seek help for things that white students, they don't even think twice about. A professor said to me, Alvin, I was surprised that you didn't come to me to talk to me about your grade in grad school. And I said, I made a B. I worked hard, I got a B. I didn't even know. There were students coming to their professors. I need an A. This B is not going to work. What can I do? And so I think that I think that acknowledging when something is a challenge and not being afraid to seek help. I think our imposter syndrome can cause us to think that we have to go at things alone and, and, or that it's us. But it's okay to get help. It's okay to talk to others. And I think that that's one of the, the things I would advise you to do. And I hope by me sharing this story about me I, uh, could, could, could provide a little bit of inspiration. I, I actually was diagnosed with my OCD in undergrad too. So I had a similar situation. My, my OCD was giving me panic attacks, not during tests though, because like OCD, it's a hyper focus, but it was causing me to not go to class. Like I'd stay in my dorm because I didn't want to like go outside and see the litter, like things like that. It was like very intense. Yeah, I wouldn't want to like go if it was like snowing or like anything like that. I'm like, oh, the ground is dirty. I don't want to walk through the dirty ground. It was a problem. So I was diagnosed finally with OCD when I was an undergrad and that helped me a lot. But like you, it gave me like extra time to do stuff because if I didn't just show up to class, my professors knew like, oh, she might have had some sort of like issue where she like just could not get there like physically unable to get there. So yeah, so I get like extra time with things. I could like, my professors gave me more office hours because they're like, okay, she sometimes she's going to miss class. So she needs to come and talk to us. So, but yeah, I was late diagnosed. Oh yeah. And Amaya said, it's definitely helped. Thank you so much. So thank you, Amaya, for your question. I'm sure that question is being asked by so many. So that was an excellent question and an excellent answer from both of you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Friends Like Us. It's a wonderful episode to start the new year with. I think this is a very crucial time in Americans' history with education. So thank you. I'll start with you, Noye. Tell our listeners where they can find you. Okay. Um, you can find me on noyecomedy.com, N-O-N-Y-E comedy.com and Noni Fizzle on Instagram, N-O-N-E-E-F-I-Z-Z-L-E. Um, so that one's difficult. I need to change that, I think. Um, and, oh, I did a, I did a little sports 
Sports Talk, Game Breaker Sports Talk on Amazon, episode 27. You can see me on there, Amazon I Prime. Saw that. Great. And, yeah. I had my little blonde wig on, I look cute. Uh, <laughs> and with friends like us, you can always ask for help, which is something I did not do when I was growing up. And it's very important. You could always ask for help. Excellent. Thank you, Noye, for always being amazing. Alvin, Barbershop Books. I hope no one steals it. I see some articles about Barbershop Books. Well, I'm always like, Barbershop well, Books is okay, a but... registered trademark with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and so, uh, but we, we hopefully won't have to be sending no cease and desist. Yeah, you can find more information about Barbershop Books uh, on our website, barbershopbooks.org. Also uh, on all social media platforms at um, Barbershop Books. If you would like more information about me, you can visit my website, uh, alvinirby.com. Uh, my last name is spelled I-R-B as in boy and Y, alvinirby.com. Um, you can check out my TED Talk. Uh, if you go to ted.com and just type in Alvin, it'll pop up. Um, and then it's at Alvin Irby on all social media. And I host a monthly comedy show the fourth Thursday of every month at the Gentleman's Frat Factory uh, in downtown Brooklyn. And so if you uh, follow me on social media, I definitely put up links uh, to where you can come uh, and check out my standup and talks and all that jazz. With friends like us, we affirm and encourage um, each other. Absolutely. Wow, these are the best friends like us. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And uh, yes, with friends like us, you can ring in the new year with some of the most vital information that can help you to make 2023 the best year possible. Thank you both so much for joining us. Check, Check us, us out. out. I do sound like Peppermint Patty. It's crazy. <laughs>